I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Good to have you listening in. Fairy tales are deceptively simple, aren't they? Once upon a time, stories infused with adventure and righteous moral power. Writer Neil Gaiman says, Fairy tales are more than true. Not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. Novelist Kelly Barnhill knows her way around fierce dragons and fairy tales. The dragon in her new novel is a shape-shifting, magical dragon who is both angry and dangerous. The novel is also populated with ogres and orphans, and Barnhill confides in her author's note that this book, quote, started out as a fairy tale, but it revealed itself to be a story that asked a very specific question. What is a neighbor? Kelly Barnhill's new novel for young readers is titled The Ogress and the Orphans, and she joins us from St. Paul. Welcome back to the show, Kelly. It's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you, too. Do you think Neil Gaiman is right? It, it isn't the fact of dragons, but it's the truth that they aren't invincible. I, I mean, is that what at large fairy tales reveal? I think for sure that is true. Um, I think it's also important to understand that the purpose of of a fairy tale was always to speak to the larger world. Um, and uh, sometimes we have to look at the world the way it is not in order to understand the way that it is. And one of the cool things I think about fairy tales is that they are an expansive form. They were meant to be for all ages. They were meant to um, uh, invite people in at the end of the day. Uh, they were the wide carpet that was spread out for everyone to sit down if they were young or old, and that everybody would be able to apply something to their own lives that they would see in this tale of, of journeys or that which is strange or that which is unknowable. I love the idea of that, Kelly, because I've been reading about some of the scholarship of fairy tales. Mm -hmm. You know, in the ages before people wrote stories down, fairy tales were the way that communities passed cultural wisdom right. to one another. And they processed what had happened. Sometimes it was traumatic. Sometimes it was joyous. It sounds like you really understand that. Well, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I was very much a fairy tale kid. I was slow to reading. I was um, I was a delayed reader. And when I started to read, when I started to really read, uh, I I really did gravitate towards fairy tales. I loved I loved that you could still see and hear in the text that it was in its nature an oral form. Um, I was very much an an oral kid. I loved being read to, and I loved the sensation of a story out loud. One of the cool things I think about fairy tales, too, is that they were used as a as a tool to be able to um, not just pass down culture, but also pass down some pretty important tools for how we navigate the world, right? What do you mean? Well, so for example, you should always give your meal to a beggar, right? <laughs> like, that's really fundamental. <laughs> 
in all, in all of these fairy tales. You should never disrespect the old woman that you meet at the bottom of a well. That's just a terrible idea, right? If you part ways with your brother on a journey, you are going to find him again in a way that that you don't expect. That when that when people navigate the world, they sometimes lose their sense of themselves. They sometimes lose their memory. They sometimes uh, forget who they always have been. And it is up to the people in their lives to reconnect them and to bring them back. Right. Um, and so I, so those sorts of, uh, sort of fundamental truths were, they resonated deeply within me when I was a kid. And, uh, and, and so I became a fairy tale kid. I would go to the library and I would get, I would get these collections from all around the world. It's how I learned what interlibrary loan was, was because of my great love of fairy tales. A very important concept. Indeed. I thank God every day for the librarians at Walker Library. (laughs) I know. So I want to come back to something that you said a few minutes ago about being a delayed reader Mm -hmm. and your parents reading out yeah. loud to you. Your parents read C.S. Lewis's novels, yep. the Tolkien novels yep. when you were a kid. And I think I Lots remember... Of <laughs> I was just going to say, I think I remember that you love to listen to Dickens oh. because, you know, I think that's interesting because Dickens wrote some really suspenseful novels and the language can mm-hmm. feel really formal until you get used to it. Yeah. What, what was the pleasure of listening to Dickens out loud? The thing about language out loud is that language has texture and weight and heft, right? Um, I, I, I think about that all the time in my own work, um, how, how language sits in the ear, how language feels in the mouth, how it, how it resonates in the chest, um, that we, 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 tell stories with our whole bodies. We hear stories with our whole bodies, at least for me. In my work, I read everything out loud. I read everything out loud again and again and again. Mm-hmm. I loved listening to Dickens as a child. I loved the sensation of that language. My parents are both big words people. My father's a lawyer and my mom is an English teacher. And mm-hmm. my dad would come home at the end of the day and we would all sort of like pile onto the couch, all five of us, and he would read to us. And um, mm-hmm. and even uh, as we all became you know readers on our own, we still... Uh, maintained that and we still maintained that coming together Hmm. and Dickens was my favorite I have really profound memories of um of of listening to Dickens and then later you know when I was going to the library on my own when I would take my siblings to the library I discovered that there was you know books on uh, we didn't even get them on tape we got them on records um uh, which is so funny that I know and I would get like BBC radio plays (laughs) um and and listen to those on record we you know we all shared rooms and uh with my babysitter money I bought at a garage sale this Fisher price oh it was <laughs> glorious it was two-toned cream and orange that sort of molded plastic record player and I would go to the closet because I was the only place where I could be alone and listen to stories in that way and it 
had a profound impact on me, actually, um, and, and how I think about story and how I uh, interact with story. And I do credit Dickens, actually, for um, just my love of language and, and, and the ways in which words fit together. So what do you think the effect of being a delayed reader is on the way you think about the rhythm of language and as you describe it, the texture of language. What does it mean to you today? That's an interesting question. Gosh, nobody's ever asked me that question before. Um, I I do think what that means is that when I did start reading, I read in a big way, but also I had a yearning for story in a very physical sense. I only realized more recently that my brain is not exactly the same as other people's, that it kind of works in different ways. I, I'm not a visual thinker at all. Um, it's very huh. rare for me to have visual image images. I can really? do it, but like it's, it actually kind of tires me out. Um, uh, and wait, wait, hold on. Uh, so- <laughs> That's really interesting because I guess the way r- many of the authors that I've interviewed have described the way a story will come together is seeing an image, mm-hmm. you know, seeing something that doesn't quite make sense, but that they sense that there is more to be uncovered. Yep. Um, it sounds like that's not how things begin for you. So, so how I mean, do they sometimes begin? Sometimes it is. Um, and when I do get a visual image what, that sort of comes unbidden, um, it's it always sort of feels like a bolt from the from the blue, and um, and and so I do pay attention to it. And and in fact, that is how um, uh, the girl who drank the moon uh, began as a mm, as a yeah. visual image, uh, sort of while I was in the middle of a run, and um, and that sort of stopped me in my tracks. Uh, similar with my very first book, um, the mostly true story of Jack also started with a visual image. But most of my work starts with language. So I'm a runner, and I I will compose while I'm running. And I will start with a sentence that pleases me. And then as I go, it's it sort of is, you know, what what keeps me, you know, heading down the trail, I will start to add sentences to it, uh, sort of like beads on a string. And I'll, you know, I'll start with the beginning and then the next sentence that fits, that fits, that seems to logically fit and also uh, sounds correct. And then I will come up with another sentence and then, and then start to go through and then it will get longer and longer. I can hold about two to three pages of text in my head in that way, uh, wow. sort of. And I'm sure it changes over time. I mean, I, I'm not super precious about it, but then I'll come home and, and I'll write it all out. I, I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a conversation with Kelly Barnhill. She is a Minnesota-based writer, and she's out with her new YA novel called The Ogress and the Orphans. Um, Kelly, so I think we got to the revelation about you're not a visual thinker, which mm-hmm. which I found quite interesting. Uh, because I was asking you about how your delayed reading experience as a kid shapes the way you think about language today. And I, I don't know that we ever got quite to the answer of that, but... I wonder if, if something has come to mind. Yes, for sure. Although I do have to um, correct you on one thing. Ah, <laughs> it's do. definitely not a YA book. It's a it's a middle grade book. Um, oh, which sorry about is that. totally okay. fine. But we can talk about sort of the differences and why it matters here. Um, well, let's do that. Go ahead. Let, let's not skip that. Okay, Go right so, ahead. So um, as you may know, I teach at Hamlin University in their children's and young adult uh, literature for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, 
the difference between a middle grade book and a YA book, as well as an adult book, because of course I have an adult book coming out uh, later on in May, uh, has less to do with age and has more to do with view. What direction is the piece looking? Now, for sure, this is this would qualify on anybody's uh, sort of scale of things as a middle grade book because of the intended age of reader, which is, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who's, you know, third to sixth grade, whereas YA tends to be, you know, middle school through um, high school. So for this mm-hmm. novel, the difference is then that this novel is probably too young for the outer range of the YA well, Is that it? I mean, so this is very generally speaking. I mean, there's lots and lots of high school kids who read middle grade books and love reading them, right? Just as there are younger kids who will sometimes read um, uh, YA books. And so, which is why I, I like to tell my students that the difference is not so much in age, but in which direction the piece is looking it has to do with view. Okay. And what does that mean when you say well, that? Well, so for a middle grade book, just like a middle grade kid, um, and when I'm talking, when we say middle grade, we're not talking about middle school. We're talking about sort of upper elementary school. So let's, mm-hmm. let's take an 11-year-old, right? If you have met an 11-year-old, which I'm certain you have, uh, an 11-year-old, uh-huh. their view is outward, right? They're trying to understand the world. They're trying to understand the whole world. So they'll ask a lot of questions. If you ask an 11-year-old, what is it that you would like to be when you grow up? They will tell you infinity things, right? They will tell you things that don't exist. They will, I want to be all of these things when I grow up. They are thinking about and they're sort of telescoping forward in time who they think that they will be when they grow up. What will I be thinking about when I grow up? Which is why these, these books tend to ask big global questions. What is justice? What is love? What is friendship? What, why is it that the world is built the way it is? And can the world sometimes be something else? Right? So the view is outward. YA, on the other hand, is teenagers, right? I don't know mm. if you've ever met mm. a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going with this so, now. Um, uh, uh, teenagers right. are, are preoccupied with identity, right? Who uh-huh. am I? Looking and what does that mean? If you ask a teenager what they what it is they want to be when they grow up, they will say, why are you making a- aggressive eye contact with me? And can I please go to my room? <laughs> um, and I say this with all the love in my heart, having raised two teenagers and still have one in my house. So these questions of who am I? And do I matter? And what does that mean? Uh, it's also why YA books tend to be uh, largely focused on on the choices that we cannot undo right? I've never uh-huh. been a person who has done X, Y, or Z. Now I am a person who has done X, Y, and Z. And now I am that person forever. And of course, we as adults mm-hmm. know that that's not true. But holy hell, does it feel true when you are 15, right? You know, given what you've just said, mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you about a scene in the book. Okay. Where the orphans have brought their wares to market day. Yeah. And they encounter some people who have some pretty distorted and stereotypical views of what orphans are like. Right. And that, that is such a beautifully wrought scene. The message is not, it's not overdone, but it's really sharp. Mm-hmm. 
I want to know what was on your mind as you created that scene and whether that's one of those scenes that you went back to again and again to refine. That's a really good question. Um, Gosh, that scene really kind of broke me a little bit to write, mostly because, I mean... I think this is true with everybody who um, who writes books at all, that it comes from this place of um, of deep, you know, love and care and affection. And uh, and I really, really cared about these kids and and wanted them to be okay. But we were also in this crazy time in the world where people have been looking for reasons to dislike one another, um, mm. uh, to um, uh, categorize and, and therefore dismiss people, right? And here we have this town where resources are strained, uh, where people's sense of uh, not only neighborliness, but public good and public responsibility and civic responsibility uh, has been really eroded and almost lost. And so I think when people find themselves in situations like that, especially when they are encouraged to do so by outside forces, that it becomes an easy, thoughtless move to categorize and dismiss. But of course, from the reader's point of view, we know that none of these children are categories, right? Each of these children are wildly different from one another. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they all care mm-hmm. about each other, and they they live in that sort of you know uh, that sort of movable clump, the way that siblings tend to be, and the way that um, big families tend to be. But in this context, they are not seen as themselves. Right, they're seen as a type, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, and something that they don't recognize. They don't recognize right. as um, being even close to them. I think that's a really important element of this scene. That this is not how they would ever imagine themselves to be seen, nor one another, because mm-hmm. as you as you note, this is a, a group of orphans who are all very close to each other. So this is their first exposure in some ways yeah. to seeing how corrosive the world could be. That's right. why this is such a poignant scene to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. at least. And I think that's how you meant it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it, which isn't to say that they haven't um, uh, experienced this in some more oblique way um, uh, before. I mean, certainly they they have been highly protected by these two adults who love them so much and mm-hmm. who are who are trying to sort of like create this buffer between themselves and the world. So they certainly, I think, have probably seen bits and pieces of this, but this is the their really first time where it really um, uh, uh, hit them in the face, both you know, figuratively and actually. Um, uh, so it um, and 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 the world became a much meaner place for them, right? Um, as right. a result, this is yeah. a, in some ways a loss of innocence yeah. that every every child experiences. Yeah. But this is an especially harsh one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, um, I just. Uh, had the pleasure of interviewing Marlon James again. Oh, wonderful. And he's great. I know and he is. <laughs> we spent some time talking about the power of the narrator and how important it is as a reader to think about who is telling the yeah. story mm-hmm. and why they're telling it the way they are. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure this is something you talk about with your students mm-hmm. at Hamlin and something you think about. So. Mm-hmm. So as you approach a story, 
what what goes into the decision about who's going to be the person to tell the story? Yeah, so I think about that a lot. Before I can start writing, you know, I um I have to think about a book for a really long time before I can actually start writing, writing it. Uh, so all of my books will start with a box where I just will like throw throw stuff in there. Sentences that I like, whole pages that I like, I will draw terrible maps and terrible pictures of things. I have this really weird way of plotting out a scene with sort of directionality. And I couldn't explain it if I try. It makes total Mm -hmm. sense to me. But nope, everybody else would see like weird boxes and arrows that make no sense at all, right? But there's a couple of things that I'm waiting for before I can actually start doing my quote unquote draft zero, which is always longhand. First, I need to know just the sound of the piece, you know, what the rhythm of the piece is going to be, what the texture of the language is going to be. All of my books have a different texture to them. And I think about it a lot before I can start. That's the first thing. The second thing I need to know is um, the place. I have to know the ground under my feet. If I don't know that, I can't start. And so I think about even, I mean, this never shows up in the book, but I think about the color of the soil. I think about whether it's rocky or smooth. I think about, um, uh, you know, where the nearest mountains are. I think about how quickly the river moves through. I think about all of those things before I can start. And then the last thing I think about is who's telling the story and why. My second book, Ironhearted Violet, the narrator is also a character in the story, and he's a liar. And so (laughs) he's telling the story, he's the court storyteller, so he's telling it in a very sort of um, uh, outlandish voice, uh, where he's using all of the tricks and skills that he's had uh, amassed over time as a court storyteller. But he also is trying to hide his own culpability, uh, while also trying to seek forgiveness for his culpability. And so there is that tension throughout the story of um, what's true and what's not true and and how we actually are forgiven. For this book, uh, I, I was really interested in the nature of time, um, mm-hmm. particularly given that ogres have these very long lives. And so their, their sense of a, um, a, of a week or a month or a year or a decade uh, is going to be different than for example, a child, a child who is knowing that they're sort of like they're growing up is rapidly approaching, right? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, uh, the end of childhood, it isn't a death, but it can feel like a death. We leave something behind that we can't get back, and then we become something else. You know, I I think in some ways you're talking about wistfulness. And I I think that's part of the reason I was drawn to this excerpt that I asked you to read, because... This is an act of kindness that the ogress is performing. And yet the whole excerpt is infused with this sense of wistfulness that this may be this may be a time that's fleeting, Mm -hmm. that her work may not be enough. Right. Um, Could you open the book and and situate us just real briefly about where we are in the story and then if you'll read the excerpt. 
for sure. So hmm, in this particular bit, we've been with the ogress for quite some time, who um, in the course of her very long life, many bad things have happened over time. Uh, she has uh, landed in this town of Stone in the Glen, which she chose to, to settle in because she knew that it was lovely once, but it has fallen on very hard times. And she wants to be able to do a little bit of good. She's very shy and she lives off um, away from everybody else and she only comes out at night. And she is bearing witness to the sort of growing poverty in this town. And she decides to give to the people and she bakes and she gives, right? Mm, and good. it's just a little thing that she can do. So... In this bit, she has come in greater contact with the children, and it has given her this sense of belonging, even though the children are worried about this um, growing sense of dread in the rest of the town. I feel like that's enough. Okay. Is that enough? That's good. That's okay, perfect. good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. As the ogress pushed her cart from house to house that night, she thought about the, ch the picture that the children had given her, now hanging prominently over her hearth. It wasn't just that the children had drawn her. It was that they had drawn all of them together, her arms around the children and the children's arms around her. Belonging. The word repeated in her head as she laid tarts on one doorstep. Belonging, she thought, as she placed a round of cheese on another. All I've ever wanted was a place to belong, she thought, as she brought scones to one house and bread to another. She had thumbprint cookies and nut clusters and hand pies and muffins. Each gift she gave with a new purpose, a new sense of importance. She let her fingers run along the old stone wall as she walked, marveling at the patterns and texture. I belong here! she said to herself. This is my home, too. The thought rang through her heart like a bell. She stopped at the orphan house. Dog whined and thumped his tail. The crows went closer to the house than they had ever dared. Harold went all the way to the window. It was dark in the house, but the window was open. Harold peeked his head inside. He stayed there for a long time time. He clucked and clicked and cooed. What wonderful children, the ogress murmured outside, her hand lingering on the gate. They arrived at the center square at the darkest part of the night. The moon had set, and the stars were so bright it hurt to look at them. Trash was scattered across the flagstones and heaped in corners. The ogress looked up. It was it was hours before dawn. She had time. And so she started picking up the trash and putting it into her handcart. She figured she could burn it in her, in her fireplace and keep her house warm. Her gaze drifted to the large building at the head of the square, the one with the large platform in front. On top of the platform was a very large sign. The ogress tilted her head the sign was bright red, with large white letters written across it. It was a sign that meant business. It was a sign that shouted, 
rather than spoke. It was a sign that insisted that no one look away. It was a sign that meant trouble. Caw, she said to the crows. What a large sign. I wonder what it says. Caw, Harold said desperately. It doesn't matter. It's not safe for you here. Don't be silly, the ogress said. This is my home. Of course it's safe. Caw, he pleaded. The children were very clear. And how could they be wrong? Hush yourself, the other crows admonished. Don't vex the ogress. And so Harold was quiet. He didn't say anything the whole way home. He didn't look back at the town as they turned away from the center square. He didn't see the brick shop with the dingy window and the man holding a candle inside watching them. He didn't see the man come outside to watch them go. And he didn't hear the man say, just wait. Kelly Barnhill reading from her new novel, The Ogress and the Orphans. Kelly, thank you so much for the conversation. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was lovely hearing your voice.